everyone, and welcome to Keith Crosby, Out of My Mind. This is podcast 002, our second podcast, where we want to have with you a biblical conversation about the crazy world in which we live. We believe that the Bible has something to say about every inch of thread that makes up the fabric of our being, and we want to use the Word of God to make sense of our existence. God's Word enables us to make sense of this world around us, and not just merely to survive, but to thrive in a broken, fallen, and often confusing world. So join us over the next 20 to 25 minutes or so as we provide you a bird's-eye view summary of some critical issue confronting our culture, the church, or you. And we'll apply God's Word to it to help interpret it and to make sense of it. Now, at the end of the podcast, we'll point you to some additional resources for further study, just in case, just in case you'd like to dig a little bit deeper. In the meantime, let's get started. Now, in today's podcast, we have a little bit of a change in format. We have a guest joining us, uh, Mark Stickler. Mark has been involved in student ministries at Hillside Church in one form or another for over 12 years. He serves today as one of our student ministries pastors, and today he's joining us to keep me on track and to ask me a couple of questions along the way. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Good to be here. All right. Well, let's get started. Today's topic is intersectional jihad and the death of Christian higher education. How do you like that? Oh, that's uh, intersectional jihad is really a, a big term. So what's the uh, what's the deal with that and death of higher education? Those are pretty extreme um, title. Well, it comes down to this. Think about it. Why send your son or daughter to a Christian liberal arts college or a Christian university or a Bible college or even a seminary? Well, I mean, in my experience, uh, I think parents are wanting to send their believing or maybe even unbelieving children uh, to a place where they're not going to be indoctrinated uh, by those who are hostile to the Christian faith, those professors that are just determined to wreck the faith of these children. Um, So they send them to a college that uh, has a good reputation for not doing that, and um, it's known as a Christian college. And so wouldn't that be a good idea? It would be, but sometimes things aren't as they seem to be. So what I want to do is sort of start at the end of the story. I want to read you a New York Times article about Wesleyan College in Connecticut. It's a college that started out as a Christian institution and is now totally secular. And I want to show you sort of where things end up, and then we'll work our way backward from there. So let me give you some background. Wesleyan College was a college in the Wesleyan or uh, tradition of Christianity. It makes you think of John or Charles Wesley. This New York Times story is about a student who went there. And let me just start reading this article to us. This story about how one well-choreographed rite of passage from high school to college life went unexpectedly awry actually started last year. Finding herself assigned to what is often dubbed the naked dorm came as a shock to Martha Reacher. But now she would rather not live anywhere else. It took a while, though. And here's where they quote her. The first week of school, I would have said that I live in the naked dorm. But now that would not be the first thing I say, Miss Reacher, a Westland University freshman, said recently. Still, it is definitely the part that gets the most attention. I can't imagine why. A naked dorm. Think about that. Christian-wise, Wesley-wise, we have what was once a respected Christian institution, probably now today living on past reputation, and uh, it has a naked dorm. Uh, how, how could anyone miss that? 
But that's not an isolated incident. Let me, let me read you a, another article from the Georgetown Hoya. That's the student newspaper at Georgetown University. Uh, and this is written by a student who was uh, shopping for Christian colleges, uh, shopping for, uh, and, and, and she visited Oberlin College. And so listen to what she writes. I visited Oberlin College on a sunny, unusually warm day in the spring of my senior year in high school. I sat in on a poetry class and got alarmingly lost at the beginning of a 50-minute discussion of an eight-line Robert Frost poem. Well, nothing wrong with that. I love Robert Frost. But listen to this. The real fun starts on the campus tour after class. My tour guide is firing historical facts at us when we walk by a co-ed volleyball game underway smack in the middle of the quad. What a view book moment. Spontaneous, wholesome student body athleticism here at Oberlin. Now listen closely. One problem, though. None of the participants in the match are wearing anything. Nada, bare flesh, and glints of metal flashing, that's body piercings, in the spring sun. Setting, spiking, sudden large movements, lots of metal-studded midriffs and noses, all hovering dangerously above a pit of itchy-looking sand. The tour guide doesn't flinch. My mother does. Apparently, Mom hadn't done her homework. Now, Oberlin was founded in the 19th century by the famous evangelist Charles Finney. They used to train missionaries there. Yeah, I mean, those are some examples of, uh, of colleges that started with Christian roots, um, like many of the Ivy League universities. But uh, definitely, we would all probably agree, have gone off the rails uh, since then. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But my point is this that these formerly Christian institutions did not get this way overnight. They all started somewhere to end up like this, which brings us to an institution that's probably midway down that path right now. So let's go from Oberlin College, which is in Ohio, to Wheaton, Illinois, and look at an institution there that has long been a beacon in Christian higher education. Well, Wheaton, that's a name we can trust, right? It is. It's got a long history and a trusted name, a notable faculty. I mean, what could go wrong? And speaking of the faculty, let's take a look at a faculty bio. Now, a faculty bio is often like a puff piece in journalism that just is some nice stuff that introduces the fac a new faculty member to the institution or to students or to parents. And uh, a lot of times they don't tell us much, but I think this time this faculty bio tells us a little more than they might have thought. So I'm just gonna sort of read through it, so work with me here. So what was your favorite class in college and why? They're asking a philosophy professor who just joined the staff. And his answer is second year Koine Greek. That's New Testament Greek. I loved spending a semester working through Galatians and another working through the first half of John. My professor and classmates were amazing and helped me to learn to read non-English texts with extreme care. Well, that seems uh normal enough for a uh, professor at a Christian college to enjoy learning Greek? Yeah, he studied Galatians and the first half of John and the original Greek. But let me just keep going, and I want you to listen carefully. I want you to look for any yellow flags here. Before you went to this institution, what were you doing? And his answer is, I was completing a PhD at the, in philosophy at Baylor University. What big question, next question, what big question are you trying to answer through your work? His answer is, what does sanctification look like in a racialized world? To answer this question, I'm retrieving the work of Thomas Aquinas and studying and writing on critical race 
theory. Next question, what's one interesting or intriguing thing that you have learned recently? His answer, sharks have electric sensors in their heads that help them hunt. I learned this while watching a show about great white sharks with my daughter, who loves sharks. Another question, do you get butterflies the night before the first day of school? His answer, no, though I do get, get, get giddy as if it were the night before Christmas because I love teaching. What would you say to incoming freshmen? He would, his answer, don't make grades an idol. So, I mean, he likes to spend time with his family, right? Yeah, he likes to spend time with his family, um, enjoys teaching. I'm not seeing where the, uh, the harm quite is in this. Right. It's a little subtle there. So let's go back to one of his answers to one of the questions. And the question was, what big question are you trying to answer with your work? And that question means, what is, where does your passion lie? What is your life's work or aim as a, as a scholar? And his answer is this, and it's very telling. And the answer is, what does sanctification look like in a racialized world? To answer this question, I'm retrieving the work of Thomas Aquinas and studying and writing on critical race theory. Now, don't miss that. He's retrieving the work of Thomas Aquinas and he's studying and writing on critical race theory. Now, Thomas Aquinas was a, a medieval Catholic theologian who did not understand salvation. He kind of had it tied up with works. And sanctification, in his mind, was something that, that you could progress to perfection on. So I don't know that that's a place I'd look, but I want to unpack his answer a little more. Uh, what, does, what is it you're writing on? And he says, what does sanctification look like? What does spiritual growth look like in a racialized world? Now, there's a presupposition there. Do we, in fact, live in a racialized world? Well, some would say yes, and some would say no, and some might say it's debatable, but he's already decided the answer to this question. And that begs the question, Really, what has sanctification, what has spiritual growth always looked like? Because the world has always been composed of people from different nationalities and backgrounds and races. So how is he going to determine this truth? Where is he going to look for guidance? And his answer is Thomas Aquinas and critical race theory. And I guess my question would be, what about the Bible? Isn't that sufficient? Maybe, maybe not. Because, you know, in some circles, they don't take the Bible that seriously. Let me read this statement from another institution's statement of faith. The Bible, while divinely inspired, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible. It was written by men over centuries and thus reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. We affirm that biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages, which messages in the Bible, are God's. Yeah, I remember that uh, from a quote that you had in one of your sermons recently. That was the, uh, that's the seminary in New York, right? Right, that's right. That's a union seminary in New York. It's a seminary that elevates critical theory over the word of God. And when you read this man's answer, you see that, you see that he's looking to critical race theory to help him understand spiritual growth. And therein lies the problem. Now, now let me say this. He did say he was writing on it. So let's look at something that he's written. Let's look at one of the magazine or journal articles he's written involving critical race theory. And I'm going to read an exact quote here. It says, The reason Black Lives Matter, the organization, exists is because the human institution which should have the fullest and richest, fleshiest understanding of dignity, God's church, did not say Black Lives Matter, the phrase, often enough, loud enough, or to the powers that be. He goes on to write, if Christians do not like the way black lives matter 
or any other group goes about its business, we need to stop parsing methods and mission statements and step up to do the work of justice. Now, did you get that? So the Black, the Black Lives Matter organization is okay because of the failure of the church to say the phrase Black Lives Matter often enough or loud enough. This is an article he's written on critical theory. And, 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 and how will the Black Lives Matter organization that he is uh, advocating for here go about all of its business. Well, let's go to their website and see. Why don't you read for us there, Mark, on the BLM website, what it says about their aims. Yeah, um, on the BLM website, it says that their aims include uh, the following, to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folks, especially black trans women. We build a space that affirms black women and is free from sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirements by supporting each other as extended family and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Uh, they also say that we foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Now, what do you think of that, actually? I mean, that's... You know, here's the thing, too. Notice it's uh, very subtly hostile male, even though it's Black Lives Matter. And, uh, you know, it's... And the question is, how does any of this get a pass from this professor? He talks about not parsing their mission statement or methods where you look at the, the violence that they have propagated around the country right now. And what you see is this is an organization that this prof, a prof who will be teaching children, young people, young adults in this Christian liberal arts institution in Wheaton, Illinois, he's going to be teaching on critical theory. He's going to be weaving this ideology into the classes. And he gives a pass and says that we should support this organization and its goals without getting too worked up over its mission statement or methods until the church gets its act together. The problem is, is this prof makes too large, perhaps too convenient, a generalization. This prof is looking to critical race theory to answer the question of what is sanctification, what does spiritual growth look like? And the problem also is, is that critical theory and intersectionality are rooted in atheism, they are fundamentally anti-God and anti-Marxist, as is Black Lives Matter, which raises a larger question. And that question is? Who hired this guy, man? Well, that's it. Bingo. Who hired this guy and how did they go about it? What kind of Christian institution allows for a, war, a worldview like this and hires a pref who peddles it? You know, it's one thing to say, here's what this group believes, here's what that group believes, and here's why it's right and here's why it's wrong. But he's not doing that at all. He's advancing this agenda. So just to be clear, you're not saying that every professor and every department at the school is off track, but this, this one apparently is maybe points to a larger problem. Exactly. I'm not saying that every prof and every department, every prof and every department at this school is going to seed, and I'm not suggesting that they've all drifted and are exposing to all students to ungodly philosophies like critical theory. But what I am saying is that they, these institutions have allowed these people, as, to use the language of Jude, to, to, they've crept in unnoticed and have turned the grace of God into something else. 
So would you think that this is more of like an isolated case, maybe isolated to this college there in Wheaton or um, something, something that we see more widely in the college, um, Christian college community? You know, Mark, I wish I could say it was an isolated case, but let's go from Wheaton, Illinois to Azusa, California. Back in 2012 or 13, there was a controversy at a, univer- a Christian university located in Azusa. And what happened was there was a very popular and beloved uh, systematic theology professor, and she divorced her husband sort of out of the blue. And really, nobody seemed to challenge that because, you know, divorce in a Christian context is a serious thing. But so they let her keep teaching, and seemingly no one asked her any, any questions. Then she started cutting her hair short and dressing like a man, and apparently no one said anything then. And then finally she came out as a man and started going by a man's name. Ultimately, the board of trustees of that university intervened, and, they, and she separated from them. But the students went into this huge protest, which makes you wonder what the students have been taught in their Bible classes or their chapels or whatever. And so, you know, you you have to ask the question, how on earth did these institutions get to this point in the first place? How do they hire people like this? And how do they find themselves in this this condition? So maybe if you can break it down for me, kind of what's, what's the point in one sentence? I guess my point in one sentence when you talk about intersectional jihad and critical race theory and the death of Christian higher education is this. There's an old saying, uh, uh, you know, caveat, caveat emptor, which means uh, let the buyer beware. And when it comes to Christian education, I would say let the parents beware, let the students beware, because... Again, to use the language of Jude, these people have, with these ideas, have seemingly crept in unnoticed, turning the grace of God into something else. So we've talked about critical race theory um, and intersectionality uh, quite a bit here and how it's creeping into these colleges. Can you maybe explain a little bit more what that's about? You know, I'd like to. I don't know that time allows it, but it's a theory that basically breaks down all the world into two groups, the oppressor and the oppressed and uh, basically calls for uh, knocking the oppressor down a notch or two. It sort of advances a racial view of reverse discrimination. But I tell you what, uh, I preached on this, and in our resources, there's a link there to one of the sermons called uh, Imagine a God Part Two, and it provides a very compact uh, explanation of critical race theory. Also on the website, there's the Neil Shinvey link where he does a very good job of explaining critical race theory and its incompatibility with Christianity. So yeah, so um, now that you bring up Christianity, what uh, what does this all have to do with Christianity, Christians, Christian education, and, and that such? Well, the Holy Spirit tells us through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. When Christian institutions are infected with bad philosophies like this and pass it on to our young people, they pick it up, and often they do so at the expense of their faith. And here's where the whole intersectional jihad title kind of comes into play here. The philosophy that, that we're talking about is an aggressive one. It demands activism. And it demands radical change. 
and it really uh, minimizes uh, the Christian faith and actually limits, uh, describes it as an oppressor group in itself. And that's why many of your students, mom and dad, are coming home angry at you and you can't figure out why. That's why they're saying, you know, you've got white privilege or you're a racist or you're a homophobe or, and they're labeling everybody who disagrees with them as bigots because there is no moderation in this philosophy. Critical theory pushes itself relentlessly, seeking to destroy its enemies, real or imagined, with a religious fervency that demands, it demands a level of extremism and its presuppositions are atheist in nature. It is anti-God, anti-Christian, and it eternities are at stake here. The, the, the spiritual condition of your children are at stake here. Uh, the, the future of our society, the children, the young adults are our future. And the problem is, is that this critical theory, this intersectionality, has moved from the secular academy into Christian universities. It's working its way into our churches, and our children, our young people, are its intended victims. Now, let me just stop right here. Understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist and that it's somehow okay. Racism is a terrible, terrible sin. There is racism in our country, although our country isn't a racist country, and there's a resource about that on our resource page today. But racism is real. Racism is terrible. It's sin, and as long as there's sin, there'll be racism, theft, lying, cheating, killing, and critical race theory, I suppose, has generated some helpful discussion and debate in matters of race and racial inequality. However, it's like a broken clock. It's right twice a day. It's mostly wrong about the diagnosis and the solution. But again, it does, it does get some things right, but they're the exception as opposed to the rule. Think of critical race theory as a defective compass. You're at the South Pole, and it points north. And no matter where you go from the South Pole, north is north. The trouble is, as you get to the equator, you need more precision and more nuance. And so you don't want to base your life on a broken clock or a broken compass. So, uh, so what can be done about this now where we stand today? Oh, that's, a, that's a hard question. Uh, admittedly, the cat is out of the bag, and once the infection presents itself you know, in a Christian institution, it's nearly impossible to get rid of it. It's sort of a Pandora's box thing. But as they say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. For starters, avoid these schools and institutions altogether. If you're a donor, stop supporting them financially. If you're a graduate, if you're an alumni, confront these schools, its administration, write, email them, uh, organize a resistance to their continuing down this path, withhold financial support, donations to all departments, create external pressure. And if you're a pastor, let your people know about this. So uh, for me, what, what about the parents that are planning to send their young adults off to school? Um, what, is some, uh, what is some advice that I could give them or you would, you would give them? Well, if you're considering sending your son or daughter off to any Christian institution, scour their website. Go all over that website. Uh, look for any mention of critical theory. Just look at, the, look at the school's catalog online. Write the school. Send them an email. Ask tough questions. Don't be bashful. Check the bios of the professors and the faculty. Look at speakers who've spoken at uh, commencement ceremonies. You know, uh, be careful. Be bold. Because, again, the well-being, the spiritual and emotional and maybe eternal well-being of your students 
are at risk here. By the way, if you're thinking of sending your son or daughter off to a Christian institution, on our resource page, there's also a free resource about what to look for and how to choose a Christian college or school and when not to do so. And whether you're sending your young person off to a Christian school, I think this short guide will give factors that will be helpful for you. In the meantime, be on guard, be watchful, be careful. So I think we're out of time at this point. Um, is there anything else that you want to add in uh, before we close up today? No, no, I think that's enough for today. Again, if you'd like further resources on this, if you want to dig deeper, go to www.gracetoliveradio.org. You can click the podcast resource button there. If you want to learn more about critical theory, again, or critical race theory and intersectionality, there's a sermon link there, Imagine a God Part 2. Part 1's not a bad idea either, but just if you had to do one, Part 1. I want to also commit to, commend to you a, a secular podcast, which I think has helpful information about worldview, and it's called the Quillette, Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E podcast, quillette.com. They also have a website. I think you'll find it very helpful there. It provides you with a lot of helpful information. Again, it's not Christian, but it does provide great, great information. I've also provided some links to these articles that we quoted because some of you may doubt that these are real, but they are. There's a link to the uh, transgendered systematic theology professor at the institution in Azusa as well. So last and not least, uh, there's also a link to our Patreon page. And for a $5 gift, we'll send you a t-shirt with an encouraging Bible verse on it. Be sure to email us your size. And if you'd like to ask me a question, I'd love to hear from you. I try to answer emails within 24 hours. You can email me at keith at hillside.org. Keith at hillside.org. If you like to worship with us online, www.hillside.org forward slash services. You can watch our worship services online or worship outdoors with us every Sunday. Before we go, if you're listening to iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, please like us. Like us on your Facebook page. Uh, Share the podcast with people. Give us a five-star rating so that we can begin to reach more people for Christ. We need your help. We release this podcast on Wednesdays, so we hope you'll join us next time. Feel free to subscribe, and I want to thank Mark Stickler for joining us today. This is Keith Crosby, Out of My Mind. God bless you, and God keep you. Have a great day.